Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options and Global Medical Education Neurology and Psychiatry Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Phipps. Today's episode features Dr. Sanjay Matthew, Professor and Vice Chair for Research at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and Dr. Roger McIntyre, Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto and Head of the Mood Disorder Psychopharmacology Unit in Toronto, Canada. They will be discussing evidence-based approaches to choosing the right treatment for bipolar depression. This episode is part of a larger educational program entitled Recent Advances in the Management of Bipolar Depression. For more information on Dr. Matthew and Dr. McIntyre, along with links to other bipolar depression programs, including podcasts and clinical thought medical commentaries, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what these experts have to say about this important topic. Well, Sanjay, it's, uh, it's wonderful to work with you again, especially speaking to a topic that we both have so much interest in, that being the topic of bipolar disorder broadly and more narrowly bipolar depression. So great to work with you. Likewise, g- good to work with you and looking forward to this very interesting and exciting topic. It, it really is. And it's been very timely, I would say amplified more by the COVID-19 in the, in the sense that there's been so much interest in mood disorders broadly with what's happened and certainly very serious mood disorders like bipolar disorder, um, given what's happened around the world. And, you know, Sanjay, you know, I think for me, the question that I struggle with still as a clinician is the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, specifically bipolar depression. What, in your view, is the differential diagnosis that clinicians should be considering in a patient who might be possibly presenting with bipolar depression? To this day, it remains a very tricky thing, even for experienced clinicians to figure out if a patient truly has bipolar disorder or any number of variants that may look like bipolar disorder. Most commonly, do they have a unipolar major depressive disorder with perhaps anxious features or even with mixed features where there are some symptoms suggestive of bipolar disorder in the context of a major depressive episode? So, Figuring that out is not simple, and it's often not a thing you can do just in one visit. It may take a number of visits, and it may only manifest after even many months of treating the patient. Uh, One rule of thumb is we never want to just rely on the patient itself or him or herself as the informant. Can we bring in family members? Can we bring in loved ones, friends who know the patient and may be able to? talk about periods of time where the patient has not been particularly uh, well or or functional. Often hypomania is missed by the patient and not regarded as something that requires uh, medical treatment or intervention. And so we miss a lot of bipolar too. We also want to be looking at the longitudinal course. When did the episode start? Was this early onset? Was this later onset? These are all sort of probabilistic type indicators of a bipolarity, if it's early onset with a loaded family history, perhaps reverse neurovegetative symptoms, uh, perhaps some irritability or some evidence of of cycling. But again, in the absence of a lab test or an MRI or, or something in that realm, which we don't have, we're left with the careful history often augmented by others. So, So I think the quick answer is there is no quick answer. It may take many months. 
Yeah, that's right. And I, I really, really love your point about the, the longitudinal course. I mean, bipolar disorder is a difficult diagnosis at the best of time to make. And to make it timely and accurate with just cross-sectional data is often not possible, like usually not possible. And what I love about your comment is that um, I have noticed in my career, Sanjay, that when I see a patient for initial consultation with good history, they don't have hypomania or mania. And I diagnose them with major depression. And then five years later or three years later, seven years, I get a call and they'll say, oh, you know, I saw you five years ago. Things have changed. And we sit down and we find out, well, it turns out that hypomania mania has now presented itself. Depression often is the index presentation of bipolarity. Mother Nature's got this game figured out that we don't we don't know the patient has bipolar at that point. And I call it the one to two percent rule, where if you follow 100 people for 10 years, about 10 to 20 percent of them now have bipolar disorder. This is why I really think it's imperative. Something, uh, Sanjay, I know you see a lot of people with treatment resistant depression, and you know these people have got to be asked about bipolarity. Do you have an underlying bipolar disorder diagnosis? Because they often present a little different than it initially. I often wonder as well. In addition to major depression, does the patient have character disorder? You mentioned BP2. I agree, borderline uh, bipolar 2. In a lot of these patients, I mean, I, I saw someone just recently, it's a very common referral, query, is this bipolar? Query, is this borderline personality? And I will say, well, those aren't mutually exclusive. And then you have, you know, ADHD sometimes comes into this picture or, you know, or I think psychotic depression or even schizophrenia comes into that differential. But I think I agree. I think major depression and bipolar depression is what we're really struggling with. And I like your point about, you know, the, the probabilistic factors. One other area I've, I've often wondered, this is just sort of more curbside or I guess water cooler consultation, Sanjay, is that we all know DSM has operationalized through their polythetic list, the criteria for mixed features. And when I train, mixed features equaled bipolar disorder. That's no longer the case. Mixed features could be major depression, but mixed features do increase the probability that the person's bipolar. And these patients, as you know, often have a lot of anxiety. I, I call it the four A's. They're anxious, they're agitated, they're angry, and they can't pay attention. When I hear that story, I get a little bit suspicious, and I sort of go back to your probabilistic factors, which that's a really nice point. Yeah, no, this is, it's really important to pay attention for the, to these mixed features. Because you're right, I mean, DSM-5 has a different classification for this versus the older versions of DSM. And it really makes you think of the continuum between major depression without a hint of bipolarity all the way to bipolar mania. And where do patients fit on that continuum? And often you'll see they're, they're somewhere in between and you need to hedge your bets. And, and it, it makes a dilemma as to what are appropriate treatments for them. I mean, do you treat right off the bat with a SSRI or do you, do you hedge a little bit um, while you're gathering more information? So Roger, I wanted to just ask you with respect to your consultations in the office, uh, beyond the DSM, are there specific screening tools or other kinds of metrics that you use in your, in your clinical practice or would recommend to others to use? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the guiding principle around your question, Sanjay, is so important, that being that we should be screening for conditions, A, that we can treat, you know, so they treat bipolar depression, and B, um, you want to screen in a population that is at higher risk, and clearly people presenting for psychiatric care are at higher risk, especially people with depression and anxiety. And screening tools, in my view, uh, Sanjay, they have to have a set of 
features or aspects before I would even consider them. I want them to be brief. I want them to be self-administered. Because time is so precious. I want them to have good negative predictive value. In other words, if the person screens negative, I got a lot of confidence they don't have bipolar. So I want to have good negative predictive value, self-administered and brief. What I also would like to have is a tool that doesn't have too many false positives. I know I might be asking for too much, but that's just how I go into this ballgame. So with that in mind, a couple of screening tools immediately uh, jump out. We all probably remember the mood disorder questionnaire, the MDQ. That's been with us for over two decades now. It's hard to imagine Sunday's been that long. And the MDQ is brief, 13 items. You have to screen positive, seven of 13 or more. And it has those checkboxes. It's self-administered, and it's got really good negative predictive value. Another screening tool comes to mind is the HCL32, uh, Hypomania Checklist 32. It's used more in Europe than it is in, in North America for reasons I don't really fully understand. I think it's just part of this is just what's adopted locally. But the Hypomania Checklist 32 is a really good one because it helps us pick up some of those softer presentations of bipolarity, the more hypomanic presentations of bipolarity. And that obviously is an area we struggle with. As you know, Sanjay, when DSM-5 did the field trials to look at inter-observer agreement for bipolarity, BP-1 came in well, fairly handsome at about 0.56. For those less familiar, that's a, that's a pretty good kappa correlation when you're about 0.56. Bipolar 2 came at 0.40. And for those who don't maybe less familiar with benchmarking, this 0.40 as a kappa correlation of a diagnosis is, is not great. It's not bad, but not that great. So BP2 is a bit of a diff, more difficult diagnosis to make. And I think that's where Hypomania Checklist 32 won't diagnose it, but it'll help you kind of screen for it. And then finally, the RMS, the Rapid Mood Screener. We just validated and published that with my colleagues. It's briefed only six items. And yet there's a cut score, self-administered, brief, has good negative predictive value. And we tried to engineer it to include a couple of items that involve what you talked about, the longitudinal course, which we think is important in a screener, probably decreases to some extent the false positives. But here's the point I think I want to really emphasize and put a fine point on. The screening tools will not diagnose bipolar. I think that they can help you on ruling it out, but in the sense they all have good negative predictive value, but I can't say they have 100% positive predictive value. So if someone in fact screens positive, that's your clarion call to roll the sleeves up and do a good clinical history. But time is precious. If they screen negative, I probably wouldn't invest as much time in going through, you know, endless questions around bipolar. But they screen positive, I'm going to roll my sleeves up. And, and those are the ones that I, I, I typically think of, and those ones come to mind for me. Any ones that you do differently, Asante? No, I mean, that, that, sounds, that sounds like a great sort of plan, and they're readily available, freely downloadable, and something that a busy clinician could, could do in their office in the waiting room while the patient is waiting for the evaluation. I'll just note on the DSM field trial, while the bipolar 2 kappa concordance was relatively poor, major depression is even worse. Yeah, good point. I mean, it's something like 0.28 or something yeah. for that. So, so we don't do a very good job with the DSM-5 MDD criteria. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And uh, that was a bit humbling, that very low kappa correlation on depression. But uh, but again, I think that the key point screening tool does not equal diagnostic tool. And, and I think screening tools are a really good way to get the conversation started often with the patient. So they serve that nonspecific purpose. 
And they often give us a bit of a language, although they are patient administered. A lot of clinicians have told me they like using them because it helps them craft the questions around features of hypomania. And that's, that's, that's the art of the business. You know, I mean, asking someone, do you ever have times where you feel high and you can't sleep? Those are not artful ways of asking about hypomania. And I think these screening tools provide a bit of guidance on the language. Sanjay, a patient who has been thoroughly evaluated, and you as the clinician, the patient, uh, where applicable, the family, and so on, there's agreement that bipolar depression is the working diagnosis uh, by history, by consensus, and, and, and by you know, corroborative information. What are the evidence-based pharmacotherapies right now for bipolar depression? Yeah, unfortunately, there are not that many. I mean, considering the morbidity and potential mortality of this, when you look at the number of antidepressants we have for MDD, I mean, almost 30 antidepressants that, that we may use. Bipolar depression, much fewer. I mean, the first one approved was the olanzapine plus fluoxetine combination. That was back in 2003. Since then, we've had uh, quetiapine, and we've had several of the newer atypical antipsychotics, including lorazidone, and more recently, cariprazine. So these are drugs used in schizophrenia, but also have shown evidence of efficacy and received the FDA approval for acute episode of bipolar depression. Now, we do have other drugs that are, that are used in the longer term for maintenance, but for an acute episode, th those are the four FDA-approved approaches. Now, there, there are some other ones that may be coming online, and certainly do a lot of things off-label, in psychiatry, but in terms of evidence-based, FDA-backed, usually would start with one of those. Yeah, really well uh, presented, uh, Sonia. I agree with you. And you know, so interesting from your list, which I agreed with, is that you didn't mention antidepressants, you didn't mention lamotrigine. And just a comment on maybe lamotrigine first, because I get that question a lot. Lamotrigine does not have an FDA indication for bipolar depression acutely. The indication is for recurrence prevention, which of course does include depression as a recurrence prevention, but not for acute bipolar depression. Certainly it finds itself optimized, if you will, in clinical practice guidelines. But the question being around the evidence-based pharmacotherapies, as you stated, FDA approved, there's relatively few of them. What's so interesting, uh, it's sort of in keeping with that, Sanjay, you're right, there's so few treatments. We, we know from clinical experience, we know from recent publications, so-called pharmacoepidemiologic publications, that antidepressants are quite frequently prescribed in people who have uh, bipolar depression. And I, I suppose in, in some ways that's almost a proxy of how common depression is in bipolar, but I think it needs to be articulated very clearly that none of those conventional antidepressants like SSRIs are FDA approved for bipolar depression one or two, bipolar one, bipolar two, despite their frequent prescription. There was an article that appeared last summer, 2020, in the American Journal, uh, Sanjay, you saw the paper by Rhea et al., that not only are antidepressants frequently prescribed for people with bipolar illness for depression, but also their prescription Volume is going up and up and up. They seem to be more and more popular. And I think that just a comment about that, that if we were to look at antidepressants in bipolar depression, I trained Sanjay at a time when the bumper sticker read, antidepressants are bad in bipolar disorder. That, that, that was the bumper sticker. Antidepressants are bad. And that type of sort of bumper sticker message, uh, well, it sticks with you, but probably doesn't capture the nuance of everything. 
And there's an interesting story unfolding. We have very little consensus on a lot of things in this world, but we have a lot of consensus that antidepressants should not be given as monotherapy to people who have bipolar one depression. There's a pretty consensus on that. And the consensus, I think, is pretty clear. We shouldn't be giving antidepressants to people with bipolar who have rapid cycling, who have mixed features, who have a history of destabilization or treatment emergent mania coincident with taking or you know, coterminous with taking an antidepressant. But there is an interesting story that's unfolded, Sonia, I know you're familiar with it, and that is if we were to look at bipolar 2 disorder, and we've had this I guess this, maybe it's Occam's razor, our wish for simplicity. We always like to think bipolar two is just the mini me of bipolar one. Well, it certainly is not. It's a, it's a separate organism and it has a very different response profile to antidepressants. And there are now several studies. I wouldn't call them definitive. I wouldn't call them the end of the story. I wouldn't call them the last word. But there's a pattern that's emerged that there's a subpopulation of people with bipolar two depression who are not rapid cycling, who are not mixed, who don't have a history of destabilization on antidepressants, who can be treated with antidepressants as monotherapy safely and effectively. And that almost, even to this day, Sanjay, I have a hard time saying that. It's almost like saying the world is flat, but that's what the data say. And so there is that role, but again, that's in a very, very carefully selected patient. I don't know if you have anything else or yeah, I would just note that it is a surprising finding, but the fact that kind of finding is, has been replicated across different studies, different types of antidepressants, including fluoxetine and citalopram. I mean, going back to the old studies by Jay Amsterdam at the University of Pennsylvania, looking at fluoxetine for bipolar II depression and asking the question, well, what happens to a person who's done well with that? Can you continue on the fluoxetine? or switch them to uh, lithium or placebo. And in, in that circumstance, I mean, fluoxetine fared reasonably well for enhancing survival. There's definitely a story there, but I think the message for almost most of our uh, patients would be to tread very cautiously whenever, whenever you are considering antidepressant, certainly monotherapy. Now, adjunctive therapy for a brittle, depressed patient who persists in a depressed state, despite optimization of the on-label options, sure. I think at that point, I mean, you're you're thinking about a lot of things beyond antidepressants. You may be thinking of neuromodulation. You may be thinking of a number of things, and and you're also weighing the risk benefit with respect to side effects, tolerability, their adherence, and so on. So it's a part of a larger picture. And then, what have you done to optimize? psychosocial function? Are they receiving any kind of psychotherapies and other interventions that, that could be helpful for the continued depression? Those are really good points. Let's keep going with that, Sanjay, if we can. As you know, as clinicians, we're not just asked to make shared decisions with our patients, but we're asked to make shared and sequential treatment decisions. In other words, often the first and second line therapy are not sufficient at bringing about full clinician and patient reported defined recovery. And so the questions raised, what's the role of neuromodulation or light therapy in the algorithmic treatment of an adult with bipolar depression? That's a great question. I think light therapy is something that we hear a lot about, but we probably don't hear enough about because there just hasn't been that many studies. So we think of light therapy for seasonal affective disorder, but there have been a whole host of studies 
some done in Canada and others at University of Pittsburgh, showing that light therapy can be beneficial for patients in a non-seasonal related bipolar depression, work by Dorothea Sitt and others. And they recently published a meta-analysis of that, looking at about 250 patients with bipolar depression. And they found an effect size comparing the light box to a placebo box of about 0.43, which is a reasonable effect size for bipolar depression. And they had an odds ratio for response of greater than two. And interestingly, there was no risk of an effective switch. We sometimes read that light therapy can induce a hypomanic response or hypomania, but in this meta-analysis, there was not that problem. So light therapy is a simple intervention. Uh, There's several websites such as CET.org that really spell out how to administer this um, in terms of what is the optimal light box, what is the timing of this, how do you administer this. And so I encourage all clinicians out there to really get educated for their patients about this intervention, which is low cost and low risk. With respect to neuromodulation, uh, there's certainly a wealth of data for a long time on ECT, and we still consider ECT to be the gold standard approach for treatment-resistant bipolar depression, particularly to bipolar depression with psychotic features. And so it's something that should always be considered rather than cycling through perhaps the fifth, sixth, seventh medication, ECT should be considered at some stage in that evolution of the illness. TMS, there's much less data on with respect to the classic left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex application of transcranial magnetic stimulation. Now, all the rage in TMS is the short version of it, which is the ITBS, the intermittent theta burst stimulation, which allows you to essentially get the bang for the buck in much less time. So a three, four minute acquisition versus 30 minutes uh, for the normal TMS. There was a recent paper out of Brazil, however, finding that ITBS was not effective in bipolar depression. So there's clearly more work needs to be done. and, And a lot of these studies have been relatively modest sample sizes. So along with sort of thinking outside of the pharmacotherapy realm, Roger, I'm sure that you suggest psychosocial interventions and things along those lines. What are the evidence-based psychosocial interventions? Yeah, you're right. Uh, so I, I do very much recommend them. And um, there are several now, in fact, more than several that are evidence-based across different phases and with different therapeutic outcomes, but overlapping in bipolar. And immediately what comes to mind is cognitive behavioral therapy. Along with that is the so-called social rhythm, the interpersonal social rhythm therapy. Thirdly is family focus therapy. And then fourthly is psychoeducation at the individual and group level. This has recently been meta-analyzed, looked at all these different uh, therapies together. There's always a longer story, but the short story is they all have efficacy in the acute and or in the long-term treatment of the adult with bipolar with particularly an outcome that shows less depressive symptom burden, but I would just back that up and say overall less affective burden, so less distress, less overall symptomatic burden, whether that's bipolar per se and or so-called comorbidity. The other part about this, which is interesting, is that the virtual delivered psychotherapies, internet-based psychotherapies, 
have shown to be just as effective in many cases as in-person psychotherapy and guided, that is, when you have a therapist part of the process, although much of the heavy lifting is done virtually and through the computer system, that's been shown to even have a better outcome than just virtual alone. And I think no one is unaware of what COVID did to the virtualization and the Uberization of psychiatric access to care. And um, it's reassuring that from a cost effectiveness, scalability, and importantly, efficacy perspective, virtualized psychotherapies can deliver. At the end of the day, what does the consumer think of it? What's the qualitative reports on this? Turns out the end users, many of them like it. So I think we have uh, an acceptable alternative to the age-old problem of having access in a timely way to affordable psychological services. One other point I'm going to flag, Sanjay, and this is just me wearing the hat of DBSA, the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. I want to put a plug in for peer support at www.dbsalliance.org. I think peer support can really help families and those who live with bipolar disorder through not just our peer support programs, but also through some accurate information about the illness and its treatment. Don't hesitate to go to uh, the website. So I think it's a really important part, uh, integrating the non-pharmacologic with the pharmacologic. And I think when it comes to the future, uh, any products in the future or treatments broadly, Sanjay, that have caught your eye in bipolar depression? Yeah, no, thanks for that question. I mean, it's a real important area right now. What are the new sort of molecules that are being developed? What are the new approaches for bipolar depression? Because look, I mean, we only have a handful of approved approaches, so we clearly need to do more and do better. So one avenue has been looking at some of the second, third generation antipsychotic medications. There are several that are in development that are being studied in bipolar. Some have already completed some, some studies, such as lumateparone, which is approved in uh, schizophrenia. And it's a novel, I don't even like to call it atypical antipsychotic. It's a antipsychotic with multimodal mechanisms. Seems to work on D1 receptors and D1 receptor modulation of glutamate. It's also D2 receptor phosphoprotein modulator. So it's a sort of a unique mechanism of action, but there's data that's been sort of in development regarding its efficacy in bipolar one and two, which is uh, somewhat unique in that many of the studies uh, for some of the other agents have only looked at bipolar one depression. Of course, there's been a lot of interest in NMDA modulation. So the NMDA glutamate family, of which ketamine is the prototype of a NMDA receptor antagonist. The intranasal S-ketamine, of course, has been approved for treatment-resistant depression uh, and is not approved in bipolar depression, but that's certainly some, some an area of potential future interest, as well as off-label IV racemic ketamine, which is when you look at ketamine clinics around the country, bipolar is a not uncommon indication for why the patient is receiving off-label ketamine as uh, patients either with mixed features or actually frank bipolar one or two depressions may benefit from that. And along those lines, there, there are other uh, studies going on in neuromodulation approaches, as mentioned with TMS and other technologies. Great coverage of uh, a very disparate area, Sanjay, and I agree with that. Uh, 
lumetepirone, as you said, not just in BP1, but BP2, and as monotherapy, and as well as adjuncts. So that's going to be really interesting to see how the FDA responds to that uh, maybe later on this year. Love your comments. Of course, we have an interest, both of us, in the NMDA modulators and uh, rapid-acting treatments. It'd be really interesting at some point if someone was to do a study with one of the neurosteroids, like Zoranolone or Braxanolone, that would just be intuitive to study that bipolar disorder. And then you have, as you know, Sanjay, you have, in fact, uh, I guess two broad ways you can develop new pharmaceuticals. You can invent them de novo, or you can repurpose or modify an existing medicine. Of course, ketamine and its isomers are great examples. And we think about some of the non-racemic mixtures that are being looked at, like amisulpiride and a few others in bipolar depression. So I think that if I was to really summarize how I've looked at the landscape of bipolar, you know, recently and looking to the next five years, I think it's very promising. We have multi-modalities you hinted at, and, and we're not held ransom to pharmacotherapy. There's some interesting neurostimulatory approaches people are engaging in as well. So I think it's a very, very promising time. Uh, for the field, indeed. And, and obviously, the uh, the message of the day is get people screened, timely and accurate diagnosis. Let's get depression clarified as soon as possible. It is the enemy of the state and bipolar disorder. And let's get people on evidence-based treatments now rather than far too, which is far too common. They often don't get them at all or it's far too late to bring about full recovery. Absolutely. And, and I, I think, I mean, you want to think long-term for our patients. Is this something for the immediate next six weeks? Or how about in two years, in three years, will they continue to take the medication? Will they continue to engage? And so I think as a field, we need to look also at the long-acting injectables. And potentially, is there hope to get more of those approved for bipolar when you compare that to schizophrenia, where that's been a big success? And we know adherence in the long term is a challenge. And so I look forward to sort of having more long-acting injectables for our patients as well. Very well put. So, Anjay, as always, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure uh, to uh, speak such an uh, interesting topic, but also a lot of fun to do with a good colleague. So really nice to share this podcast with you. Likewise, Roger. Always fun to talk. Thank you very much, Dr. Matthew and Dr. McIntyre. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view other programs on bipolar depression, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.